Once again, it is wonderful to be with you on these mornings this week. We've been studying the Tulip Doctrine. We've been studying Calvinism and those five aspects of the teaching that was popularized by a man named John Calvin. And we have looked at the, two, uh, the T, the U, the L, and today we are looking at the I, which stands for Irresistible Grace. So as a part of their theology and their teaching, uh, after we being totally depraved, can't do anything good, can't do anything to seek or obey God on our own, need God to unconditionally elect or choose us, certain people to be saved, and therefore send His Son to die for those that He has chosen... And then this fourth part of the theology says that God will send His Holy Spirit into His chosen elect to regenerate them, to bring them out of that dead and trespasses and sins into an alive condition to Him and that He will grant them gifts of faith and a will to obey. And so that's what we're going to look at in this morning's session is this concept of irresistible Grace. I'll remind you that Calvinism overall is not a particular church, denomination, or a religion. It is a set of doctrines or teachings that has infiltrated many denominations and non-denominational churches as well. And so we can see, um, whether it be 5, 4, 3, 2, or 1 of these points, we can see elements of of this theology in a lot of uh, overall Christian uh, viewpoints today. And a lot of relationships that we have with people, uh, we're going to see some of that influence ...in their belief system. So why are we studying this? For a couple of reasons. One, we want to test the spirits, test the doctrines... ...compare these teachings to the Word of God... ...make sure that it's biblical or not. And ultimately, we want to land on the side of the Bible... ...and doing what the Bible says. And then we also want to have knowledge of it... ...so that when we do have friends or relationships... ...people that believe or are influenced by this doctrine... ...we have the ability and knowledge base... ...to speak to them about it... ...and study from God's Word with them... ...and show them what the Bible teaches in these areas... So we've looked this week at some history of Calvinism. We've talked about the fact that these ideas originated in Christianity with Augustine in the 300s, that he brought some of his beliefs from his pagan past and pagan religion into Christianity and began to teach them. And then about 11 or 1200 years later, we have John Calvin coming onto the scene as a part of that Reformation movement in history. He's considered kind of a second generation Reformation character, Martin Luther being the one to kind of start that period. John Calvin takes a lot of those ideas of Augustine and builds on them and popularizes this theory of the tulip doctrine in his book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Now what we'll see is in response to Calvin and his teaching, and we talked about yesterday how that Calvin was instrumental in sending pastors and and teachers out to other parts of the world to spread this reformed theology, and he was very successful at that, and it began to spread wildly. Well, as it began to spread, there also began uh, to be people that said, hey, we don't believe that, that's not what the Bible teaches, and different groups that began to stand up against that theology, and one of those groups in particular are called the Arminians. And so we want to zoom into this concept of Arminianism uh, this morning. So, uh, Arminianism is named after a man named uh, Jacobus Arminius, and he was a Dutch theologian. Now, um, the Netherlands, that was where a major part of this reformed doctrine uh, took place, and uh, a major area where Calvin had a lot of influence. And so, out of this area came a man uh, named Jacobus Arminius, who didn't believe in some of the key issues that Calvin's theology promoted. And so he and his followers were sort of the anti and considered the anti-Calvinists. And today, as you do a lot of research on Calvinism, you're going to see Calvinists refer to Arminians quite a bit. Because they consider Arminians to basically be the, 
the, the group that is the opposite, that disagrees with him on a lot of these issues. Now, I don't believe everything that the Arminians believe either. I don't believe that the Bible teaches exactly what the Arminians believed. But uh, in some key issues, the Arminians did disagree with Calvin in, in some areas that I'll, I'll definitely agree more with, with them. Uh, in the Remonstrance of 1610... The, this group of Arminians that were disciples and followers of Jacobus Arminius, they protested Calvin's doctrines in several key areas. Namely, that salvation was by grace, but that it was conditional upon faith. Okay, and that obviously is a, a more biblical aligned answer, as I would consider it, rather than it being all grace and no conditions upon man. In addition, they believed that Christ's atonement, we talked about limited atonement yesterday, that Christ's death on the cross was sufficient for all men but would only apply to those who respond in faith. Okay, so a little bit more similar to what you and I believe the Bible teaches on that. Now, because of this movement against Calvinism, that's what prompted this synod or this council of reformed leaders of... uh, John Calvin is gone at this point, but his followers and disciples, these that believed this theology, they got together from all parts of the world in a council of leaders, uh, delegates from the Church of England and Church of Scotland as well, and they concluded... They put their minds together and they wrote out exactly what they believed, this reformed theology that Calvin taught, what it, what it meant. And they tried to organize it in a way that would be easy to teach and to remember. And they responded to five complaints or protests that the Arminians had with Calvinism. And so they responded in kind with five primary points that would teach the doctrines of Calvinism, and we know those today as the five points of the TULIP doctrine that we're studying. So Calvin never used the word TULIP or used that acronym, uh, but it came out of this Synod of Dort in 1618 and 1619, these reformed leaders that were responding to Arminians who said, whoa, 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 we don't believe that it's all grace, we believe there are conditions, we don't believe Jesus only died for a few, we believe he died for everybody, it only applies to a few, and so those leaders got together and said, no, 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 here's the reformed theology, here's our response, You can break it down into a nice, easy acronym to remember, T-U-L-I-P. And that's what we're going to believe, that's what we're going to confess. And that's what they continue to teach and spread, and we see the influence of that even today. All right, so I'll remind you, the fundamental issue that we've been talking about this week, as it relates to Calvinism in the Bible, is God's sovereignty. Is God sovereign? Yes, He is. Absolutely. Scripture teaches He's sovereign. We're only here because of God. We are only taking breath because God allowed us to take breath. Ultimately, God has created everything. But as the sovereign being of the universe, that gives him the power to do whatever he wants to do and choose to organize his creation however he wants to organize it. And so the Calvinist position is that God is sovereign, and because he is sovereign and in control of everything, that must mean that he meticulously pulls the puppet strings on everything that ever happens. But we'll see that when you say God is sovereign and therefore he must, you've actually limited his sovereignty. But rather when we believe what the Bible says, that God is sovereign absolutely and can do whatever he wants, we recognize that God has chosen to organize his creation in a way where he has given mankind the free will to choose and make choices. And that's God's prerogative to do. He can give free will if he wants to. He's God. And that's what he's chosen to do. And so you and I as as people have responsibility as it relates to what God has given us choices over. So let's talk about irresistible grace, this I in the tulip doctrine. In Calvinism, irresistible grace, which is also referred to, you may hear it, as effectual grace, is the belief that the saving grace of God is given to those uh, who God chose to save, or the elect, 
And through the Holy Spirit, it will effectually overcome the resistance of their sinful nature in order to regenerate them, incline their will toward God, and give them the gift of faith. So if you were going to nail down in this Calvinistic doctrine at what point a person actually was saved, and you knew that they were one of the elect, this is the point. It's the irresistible grace. And they will say that God has a different timing for each person that he has chosen. Each person, again, that he has chosen before the foundations of the world, not according to anything good or bad that they will do, not according to any conditions. He's already chosen them. But at some point in the elect's life, God will send his Holy Spirit into their heart to take them from that dead in trespasses and sins condition into a position of being alive and regenerated. And with that regeneration through the Holy Spirit, God will overcome any resistance of their sinful nature. So because we're totally depraved, according to this doctrine, we can only do evil and nothing good. And that's done now for the elect. So the Holy Spirit overrides our resistance. That's why it's irresistible. He overrides our resistance. And he will grant in us the gift of faith so that we believe in God and and Christ. And he will grant us the gift of a will that can now do good. And it can choose to do good. And this is one of the interesting points, just as a side note, when you talk about free will and you discuss free will with Calvinists, because they will say that we have free will many times. They'll say we have it. But they'll say, because we're strapped down by total depravity in our sinful nature, our will is only to do sinful things. And therefore, we're making a free will choice to do sinful things simply because we're depraved, which doesn't make sense But that's the argument. And the same thing here. They'll say that because that we have uh, the free will to, to only do bad, but once the Holy Spirit overrides our resistance, then we've now been granted a will to want to do good. So one of the complaints and one of the objections we'll talk about is this idea of irresistibility, that God's going to force people, essentially, uh, to be saved who may or may not even want to or, or, or like it. They'll say, well, that's not, that's not really what it is because when he changes their will and overrides their resistance, then they want to serve him. They want to believe. So it's not really affecting their free will because now they, they're still doing what they want to do. Now we see, obviously, if God is the one controlling what their will allows them to do, then ultimately that's still not free will. I'm going to make that argument every time. But that's how they will phrase that. So a couple of terms that you may see if you study this a little bit deeper are the terms monergism and synergism. And monergism uh, is the position Calvinists would take, and it means that only God has a part in this salvation process. Nothing to do with man. Synergism says that it has to do with God and man, together, working together. That ultimately, yes, it does come from God. We can't do anything without God, but that God is expecting man to respond to the conditions that he places on them. So John Calvin said this about irresistible grace, but I demonstrate that it is entirely the work of grace and a benefit conferred by it that our heart is changed from a stony one to one of flesh, that our will is made new and that we created anew in heart and mind at length will what we ought to will. And so with this idea of irresistible grace, we have been willing what we wanted to all along, but because of total depravity and inherited sin and all that, all we've ever wanted to do was sin. And so we've made free will choices to sin, even though we're strapped by that total depravity. And now we're given a new heart, a new will, and we can will the things that we ought to will. We can will the things of God now and make those 
uh, choices out of our own will. Let's talk about the three main, main ideas behind uh, irresistible grace. Number one, God calls the elect and regenerates them by the Holy Spirit. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it like this. All those whom God has predestined to life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by His almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. And there's one of the arguments that that I mentioned that Calvinists will make oftentimes is that somehow it's still free will that we're doing it even though God has controlled our will uh, essentially in, in both both times. So I don't necessarily understand uh, how we can still argue it's free will, but once God overrides our will through the Holy Spirit and that regeneration that takes place, then we understand the things of God. We come to Christ and we obey Him. Now John 6 verse 44 is a favorite verse of Calvinists. And it says, No man can come to me, Jesus is speaking, except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, first blush, you read that and you go, well, it does sort of sound like that, right? No one can come to me except that God draws him to me. And so we're going to look a little bit deeper into that verse in just a moment. But I want to talk about outward versus inward call for a second. So this idea of God calling us to salvation, there's a couple of different calls that Calvinists will say go out from God. And one is an outward general call. And that call goes out to all mankind. Now, my opinion is the fact that they even teach that there's an outward call is simply because of the scriptural support that there's a call that goes out to everyone and they can't deny that. So they will say there is an outward call of the gospel that goes out to everyone, but there is an inward call that God gives only to the elect that enables them to respond to the outward call. Okay, so as opposed to our thinking and our biblical position, which would be the gospel call goes out to everyone, and anyone who chooses to can respond to it, they will say that outward call goes out to all men, but because we're totally depraved, no one can respond to it unless God gives them that inward call and draws them to him, regenerating them with the Spirit and allowing them to respond. Okay, so it's kind of a uh, when, does, when does faith happen? Does it happen before salvation? Does it happen after salvation? A Calvinist will say it happens after. That we can't have faith until God comes in us and he regenerates us and then we can believe in him. So we'll talk some more about that as we go. John Calvin said this statement, or this statement amounts to this, speaking of John 44 we just read, that we ought not to wonder if many refuse to embrace the gospel because no man will ever of himself be able to come to Christ. But God must first approach him by his spirit. And hence it follows that all are not drawn, but that God bestows this grace on those whom he has elected. True indeed as to the kind of drawing, it is not violent so as to compel men by external force. But still it is a powerful influence of the Holy Spirit or impulse of the Holy Spirit which makes men willing who formerly were unwilling and reluctant. Now notice uh, he, he jumps ahead recognizing one of the objections is going to be So God drags people kicking and screaming into his service. 
because it's, remember, it's nothing that they did. It's all about God. And so God just decides to cause a person to do that. And he says, well, it's not that. It's not that he's, he's drawing them with some violent or external force, but it's a powerful impulse of the Holy Spirit who makes them willing now to make that choice on their own. And that's what Calvin taught regarding that. Now, this was one that was uh, interesting to me, and it kind of relates to some of the things we've already talked about, but uh, sometimes Calvinists will go to John chapter 11, and it's this concept of dead is dead. We remember we talked this week about the idea that if we are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, we can do nothing. A dead body can do nothing, right? Unless suddenly it is given life again, and then it can do something. And they'll say, that's how we are spiritually. And they'll go to this passage in John chapter 11 and say, was there anything that Lazarus could have done as a dead body to raise himself? Anything that Lazarus could have done to be alive again without that calling of Jesus? And they'll read it. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. And they'll say, see, he was dead. He was was a dead body, so much so that he was stinking right after the amount of time that he had been dead. And there was nothing that dead body could do in and of himself, but Jesus gave him that effectual call. And there he came out of that grave and he responded to it. And it's the same thing with us spiritually. We can't respond to God, can't come to God, can't do anything for God unless God sends his Holy Spirit within us and gives us that inward call that regenerates us and makes us alive. Now we talked about after the service on Monday that actually that's a bad comparison and you can't say a physical dead body is the same as our spiritual condition. Uh, Acts chapter 7 and verse 51 I mentioned after the service where Stephen is about to be stoned. He's looking at this, this council that's about to stone him who are dead in their trespasses and sins supposedly. But he says, you always resist the Holy Ghost. Now can a dead body resist anything? Nope. A dead body can't do a thing, including resist. And yet somehow we're able to resist. And so the analogy doesn't work. And you you don't need to let them use this dead body analogy. The reality is the scripture teaches that our spiritual death is a separation from God. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Our iniquities have separated between us and God. And we are resisting. We are living in a state of resistance to God as long as we refuse to acknowledge him and do his will. But then we certainly can choose to resist him. And if we can choose to resist him, we can choose not to resist him. And so they will use this and they'll use it incorrectly. And we don't need to be thrown by that analogy. Number two. So God calls the elect. He regenerates them by the Holy Spirit. And then they are given the gift of faith and willingness to obey. John MacArthur, who's a pastor uh, out in California, said genuine faith is granted by God. Faith is a supernatural gift of God. Faith is not something that is conjured up by the human will, but is a sovereignly granted gift. And so I mentioned a moment ago that it's this idea of when does faith come and where does it come from? Does faith come from a genuine reaction of ours and a free will choice to say, I want to believe in Jesus? Or does faith come as a result of God saving us as one of his elect? And they will say it is a sovereignly granted gift. John Piper said we can say first that regeneration is the cause of faith. Having been born of God results in our believing. Our believing is the immediate evidence of God's begetting. So you know how we know someone is the elect? By their faith. By their faith and their obedience in Jesus Christ. Which is interestingly pretty similar to what you and I would say from the scripture, right? But they'll say the origin of that faith does not come from the human will, 
does not come from our ability to respond. It comes as a gift of God. That when God regenerates us, he gives us the ability and the gift to have faith and obedience to Christ. So let's look at some verses they'll use. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, For I say that through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. See, God has dealt to every man a measure of faith. It's not something that comes out of the human heart. It's something that comes as a result of God's gift. Philippians 1 verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And they'll say, see, it is given to you on behalf of Christ to believe and also to suffer for his sake. And so the gift of faith or of belief, it comes from God. It doesn't come from us. The fact that we believe and that we have faith in God is not because we chose to. It is because God gave us the gift of faith. And so if we're obedient people, good Christian people serving God all of our life, it is because God has regenerated us to do that. Not because we've chosen it on our own. That's the Calvinist position. So God calls the elect with that inward calling. He sends his Holy Spirit on them, brings them out of that dead condition into an alive condition, gives them the gift of faith, which means now they believe in God and believe in Christ. He gives them a new will that allows them to do good where they couldn't before because of total depravity. And now they're doing good, and God's grace is always successful in achieving that salvation. There is never a time when that person who has been regenerated or changed then stops doing good. There's never a time when they can resist that and say, no, I don't want it. If God regenerates a person, they're going to be regenerated. They're going to be faithful. They're going to be obedient people. And that's what Calvinists will teach. Augustine, who was quoted by John Calvin in his book, said, when he is pleased to save... There is no free will in man to resist. Wherefore, it cannot be doubted that the will of God, who has done whatever he is pleased in heaven and in earth, and who has even done things which are to be, cannot be resisted by the human will, or prevented from doing what he pleases, since with the very wills of men he does so. So again, this idea that it will be successful. That's the irresistible and the irresistible grace. We cannot stop it. We, we cannot keep it from happening. And if God chooses us, we are going to be faithful and obedient People, And that's how we know that we're one of the elect. Romans 8 and verse 30. They'll say, Moreover, whom, did he pre- or whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now they love this verse because of the structure. And they'll say, see, he predestinated us before the beginning of the world. He chose us, nothing we could do. Then he called us with that inward calling, gave us the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. And that justified us before God through that atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And then ultimately, we're going to be glorified in heaven with him because we are the elect of God. They'll also use John 6, verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And they'll say, see, the Father is going to give certain people to come to Jesus, and once they're with him, they will not be cast out. So let's look at what the Bible says. And we're going to talk about some of these verses as well that the Calvinists have used. But let's ask some Bible questions and analyze this a little bit. Are we saved by grace? What do we teach? Do we teach that we can save ourselves? That it's on us, literally? That we have the power over salvation? Certainly not. 
We are saved by grace. The scriptures teach that over and over and over again. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If anybody says that salvation is not through God and it's all through man and it's in, all in our power and we can save ourselves... They're not reading the same Bible that I'm reading. They're not reading the same scriptures that I'm reading. Of course, we are saved by grace. But the definition of what grace is, is what's important. Because how Calvinists have defined grace and the working of God with mankind is very, very different from what we see the scriptures teach. Does faith or repentance come before or after salvation? Remember, the Calvinists teach that God sends that inward call, which is the Holy Spirit within us, to regenerate us and then give us the gift of faith. In other words, we are regenerated, we are made alive to Christ, we are saved, and then we are given faith and a will to obey, a repentance. But what do we see in Scripture over and over? John chapter 20, verse 31, But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life. What order did John put the, put the belief and the life in in this passage? Did he say that having life you might believe? Or did he say that believing you might have life? It matters how it was phrased. All of these things that Jesus did in his life, the miracles, the ministry, all of those wonderful blessings and miracles that he did are written in that book so that you and I can read them and it can provoke faith within us to respond, to believe. And if we believe, then we'll have life, not the other way around. We're not given life and then come to believe. Yet that's what a Calvinist teaches. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they had heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, this was the Jews having to accept and recognize that God had allowed salvation also to be spread to the whole world, to the Gentiles as well, that they were going to be accepted into the kingdom of God. But notice the phrasing here. Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted life to repentance? Life and then a will to obey and repent? No, that's not what he said. It's not what the Jews said, not what they understood, not what the Bible presents to us. He's given to the Gentiles repentance unto life. That if they're willing to repent, they can have that life. In the same way that if we're willing to believe, we can have that life. And so this idea that belief and repentance and works and these good things come only after God has chosen to send His Holy Spirit within us to regenerate us and save us is just not what the Bible teaches at all. Does God draw us to Him with an inward call? You know, we read John 6, which is one of the favorite verses there. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent, him, uh, sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. We, I mentioned once before, but I'll mention it again. One of the most important things you can do when studying passages of Scripture is look at the verses before it and look at the verses after it. Study the context of what's going on and what's being said. And sometimes you'll find the answer in the very next verse. And that's the case with John chapter 6 and verse 44. Look at what verse 45 says. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. And every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. What is the drawing? Is the drawing of God him sending the Holy Spirit inside us to regenerate us and grant us gifts of faith and belief? 
Or is the drawing of God us being taught of God? Us learning of God? Us hearing about God? Having learned of the Father? Then we come unto Him. Not the other way around. And sometimes all you got to do... Now there's a variety of other ways that we could answer this and talk about it. But sometimes just by simply reading forward... You can go, that, has, that is not saying God sends the Holy Spirit inside you to regenerate. First of all, the first rule of dealing with Calvinist passages, as I mentioned this week, was does it say what the Calvinist says it says, or is that one interpretation you can draw? Well, taking John six forty four and saying it teaches that God sends the Holy Spirit inside us with an inward direct call, and he regenerates us and gives us uh, the gifts of faith and obedience, is not what the verse says. It simply says that no one can come to the Father except or which hath sent me, except to the Father. Sorry, no one came to me, except to the Father which hath sent me. Draw him. So there's some sort of drawing that's happening, and if they are draw, drawn towards God, then they can come to Christ. Well, what's the drawing? Them being taught of God. And when they're taught of God, they're drawn to God. And when they have thus learned of the Father, they can come to me. And that opportunity is there to be in Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How? 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 The answer to the how is not by God sending the Holy Spirit into them to regenerate them. And that's how they come to that. The how they can call on him is by believing. And the how that they can believe is by hearing. And the how that they can hear is by someone preaching the word of God to them. And when someone preaches the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and you hear that, you can choose to believe. And if you choose to believe, then you can call on God and you can be saved. You can be part of that elect group, his church. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith does not come as a sovereign gift of God that he has granted to a totally depraved sinner when he chooses to regenerate them. That's not what the Bible teaches. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now a Calvinist objection might be that they come to that faith and that hearing because God has already regenerated them. But we've seen, does belief, does repentance come before or after? It comes before we're given life. And when do we receive the Holy Spirit? What's the biblical teaching on that? When does the Holy Spirit come within us? What does Acts chapter 2 verse 38 say? As Peter has preached to that sermon and they say in verse 37, what do we do? They're pricked in their heart. What do we need to do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And what? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, well, because you're asking the question, you already believe. And because you already believe, that means the Holy Spirit is already within you and has regenerated you and you have been given the gift of faith and obedience and there's nothing that you need to do for the remission of sins because you've already been granted it. You're one of God's elect. That's not what he said. He said if you repent and you're baptized, your sins will be washed away and you'll be given the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's very important as we study these passages to, to understand these concepts. And that's one way that we can answer a Calvinist in this idea of irresistible grace is the timing of the Holy Spirit and the timing of faith and the timing of repentance and how all of that works and what the scriptures teach about it. How do we accept God's gift of grace? I believe that it's a gift. I believe salvation is a gift. I believe that it's grace. 
So how do we reconcile this idea that we're saved by grace and it's, it's God doing it and without God we cannot be saved? Well, I think we've, we've already generally covered it this week. And I want to cover it a little bit more. And I want to go back to the Old Testament to provide you with an example uh, of grace that is given on the conditions of faith and obedience. And we find it in 2 Kings chapter 5. And basically this is the story of a man named Naaman. And Naaman was a very, very powerful man in the Syrian army at that time. And he contracted the disease of leprosy, which is a very, very terrible disease. And there was a little bit, a little maid that worked in his house. And she said, I wish that you could go back to my homeland because there's a man of God, a prophet of God in my homeland that he could help you through God's power to be healed of your leprosy. And so the king of Syria sends a letter to the king of Israel basically saying, I'm sending my servant Naaman and I want him to be healed. The king of Israel gets that letter and he panics because he's going, how am I supposed to heal this guy? And Elisha's the prophet in the land. And Elisha says, don't worry about it, king. When Naaman arrives, send him to me and I'll take care of it. And so Naaman rides into town and he gets to the door of the prophet Elisha. And Elisha didn't even come to the door, but sends a messenger to him and sent a messenger to say, go and wash in Jordan seven times and thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean. And so here's this man suffering from this terrible disease of leprosy and he's approaching this man of God hoping to receive a healing and Elisha doesn't even come to the door. But a messenger says, hey, you know that dirty river Jordan over there? Go dip yourself seven times in it and your leprosy will be gone. Well, Naaman was angry, very, very angry at this. And I think he expected Elisha to come out and, and to call on God in some magnificent way or to ask him to do some spectacular feat in order to receive it. His expectations were not met by Elisha sending a messenger out to say, go dip in the Jordan seven times. And so he's angry and he starts storming away. And as he storms away, even though he has heard already how that God could save him of his leprosy, he storms away. And does he still have leprosy? Yes, he does. Until one of his servants comes to him and says, Look, if the prophet had come out and asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done that? Wouldn't you have done anything that he had asked you to do in order to get this disease off of you? How about you just go dip in the Jordan seven times? And he listened wisely to his servant and he goes to the Jordan River and he dips himself into that water seven times. On that seventh time, when he comes out of that water, I imagine him looking at his hands because it says his flesh was like that of a little child. And he looks down at those hands that had been written with that, ridden with that leprosy and they're clean. And they're whole. And he no longer has that leprosy but he has been given a great and wonderful gift. Now, did he do anything? Did he do anything in and of himself? What, did he have the power to cause the leprosy to go away? No. But was there a responsibility that he had to fulfill a condition of God in order to have that leprosy go away? Yeah. God said, here's my grace. You can be healed of leprosy. Now, Naaman, what I'm asking you to do is go dip in the Jordan seven times. And if you'll do that, if you'll accept my grace, you'll be cleansed. And you know, that's a picture. Uh, 2 Kings 5, 14, I got ahead of myself. But he was clean, his flesh like a little child. That's a picture to me of our New Testament salvation and it's a picture specifically to me of baptism. When we come out of that water of baptism having fulfilled that gospel call of repenting and being baptized for the remission of sins and we come up out of that water of baptism and our spiritual flesh is clean. 
and it's whole. And our free will decisions to sin against God and to resist God, all those things that we have accumulated because of our choices in life, they're gone and they're wiped clean. And Jesus' death has taken that away. And that comes with the condition of doing what God has asked us to do. It doesn't make it Naaman's, it doesn't give credit to Naaman. Naaman doesn't get credit for having been relieved of his leprosy. He was only relieved of it by the power and the grace of God. Any more than you or I get credit for our own salvation if we fulfill certain things that God has asked us to do. It doesn't mean that we get the credit. It is still God. It's still His grace. It's still Him extending an invitation and an opportunity to us. He is holding out that gift of salvation to us and He is asking for us to receive it. He's not forcing us on it. It's not irresistible grace. He's not forcing Himself on us. He is offering Himself to us. Just like he offered himself to Naaman. And like Naaman, we need to respond in faith. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, this is a very important verse, and I want you to pay very close attention to the order of operations in this verse. What comes first? Our response of faith or God's grace in our life? We have access by faith into this grace. In other words, we receive that grace through faith. We receive that grace when we respond in faith. We don't get irresistibly God's grace within us and then are given a gift of faith. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we have access to the grace of God through our faith. And we know that true faith is not simple belief, but it is a willingness to obey, a willingness to do the things that God has asked us to do. When you accept a gift, the giver still gets the credit. And this is one of the biggest holdups with Calvinists, is they'll say if it has anything to do with man, if there's a condition on man to accept God's grace, then you're basically putting the will of man over the will of God. And therefore God is not sovereign because we know God is sovereign and that must mean he controls everything. And therefore he can't be thwarted by the free will choice of man. And therefore you can't put that condition up there. And so the logic flows. But I want us to recognize By accepting that gift, we do not get the credit for salvation. It is still all God. And we can have no salvation without Him. But it does give the receiver responsibility. Where the Calvinist teaching on this removes all responsibility from you and I. And there is nothing that you and I have to do. There is nothing that God calls us to do. Because at the end of the story, we've all been predestined to either heaven or hell. And there's nothing we can do about it. And if God has chosen us, he'll send his Holy Spirit into us to regenerate us and cause us to have faith and obedience. So therefore, if we're contemplating whether we want to have faith and obedience, then we don't have it. And there's nothing that we need to do because either we're saved or we're not. And it puts Christians in a position or or people that want salvation in a position of having to go, well, hopefully I'm saved. Hopefully I'm one of the elect. There's nothing that I can do to be sure of that. Nothing at all. Even Calvinists who will spend their life having faith and obedience. There have been Calvinists in history that have suffered from depression 
deep depression, from an unsure spirit of not really knowing because I, I, th- I think that I have faith and that I'm obeying, but then, but then I commit a sin over here and I know that I, I shouldn't be committing sin because I've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And it puts humans in a state of, of flux where you don't know. And how can you know? Because it's all on God. Yet what God has given to us is responsibility for ourselves. The gift is His. It's not ours. The credit is His. It's not ours. The responsibility of what we do with that gift, that's on us. That's for us to make a choice on what we want to do. And finally, are there scriptural examples of people rejecting the grace of God? There certainly are. We mentioned Matthew 23, verse 37 before this week, but I want to read it again. Jesus is looking there at Jerusalem, at those Israelites that had rejected God, and he is saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Notice the wording there, how often would I. Now if God wills something according to Calvinism, it happens. When someone is saved, it is because God willed that they would be saved and sent His Holy Spirit to regenerate them. So if His will was for the Israelites in Jerusalem to be saved, then they would have received the regenerative spirit and they would be saved. But you know what He says? I would have done that. I have wanted to do that. I long to do that for you. But you would not. There's a condition. There's a response that's needed. There's an accepting of the gift that is being offered that must be granted. In Acts chapter 26, we see a story of Paul as he's preaching, standing before King Agrippa. And he tells him his story and he tells him about God. And he tells him about Christianity and Christ. And in verse 28, it says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except in these bonds. A couple of things I want to notice. Now, Calvinists will say, well, Agrippa wasn't chosen, so therefore he didn't respond to the call. But notice what Paul says. Paul was preaching to Agrippa and every other single person there in attendance. You know what he said? My will, my want, my desire is for you all to be Christians. For you all to be just like I am. Now, why would Paul say that? If only the chosen of God can be saved. If only those elect will receive that Holy Spirit that regenerates them. But Paul said, I want all of you to be just like I am in Christ. Agrippa turned it down. And said, you almost got me there. But I'm not going all the way. Can God's grace be rejected? Can a gift be rejected? Absolutely. Gifts are not forced. Gifts are given and must be received. And when the giver gives a gift, no matter what happens with that gift, he gets all the credit for the salvation for the gift. And when the receiver gets the gift and receives that gift, he's responsible for what he does with it. And we're responsible to God and to Christ with what we have done with the gift of God, which is His Son that He sent to die for all of us. So we looked at yesterday. Not limited atonement, but all of us that have access to the blood of Christ. All of us have the opportunity to be in God's grace. All of us have the opportunity to be in Christ and part of that elect group that God has determined before the foundations of the world that would have eternal life. All of us can be a part of that if we come to that grace through faith.
and obedience in God through our free will choice to do that. If irresistible grace is true, then God has limited his grace or his favor to only those he has elected to salvation. He has essentially looked down at humanity and said, the rest of you I do not love because we remember from the verse we read yesterday, here in his love that God gave Jesus for the world, I don't love you. I'm not offering you anything. In fact, I have designed you and purposed you to condemn to everlasting fires of hell. But to you, this elect group of individuals who have done nothing to deserve it any more than in those over there, I choose to give you life. I choose to give you my favor, whether you want it or not. You have my grace. If irresistible grace is true, then the choice to believe or repent becomes meaningless. Because if God has chosen you, he will irresistibly regenerate your heart and will toward him. So if you're contemplating whether or not you should believe or you should be obeying Christ, it really doesn't matter what you do because if God has really chosen you, you will do those things. Now what most people tend to do is they'll say, well, I definitely want to be the elect who God has given the gift of faith and obedience to, so therefore... I'm going to believe in Jesus and obey him. And yet, what have they done? They have made a free will choice to believe and obey him in the hope that that shows that God has elected them. When the true doctrine teaches that if God elected them, it doesn't matter what they do. He'll regenerate their spirit and they will believe and obey him. Not because they want to be the elect, because they are. And how can we ever really know that? If irresistible grace is true, then the gift of salvation is not really a gift. But it's a decree. It's forced upon those who God chooses, whether they want it or not. It makes salvation meaningless to anybody else. It makes the preaching of the gospel meaningless. It makes good works meaningless. It makes Paul's statement to Agrippa and the audience there meaningless. It makes Jesus' statement to Jerusalem meaningless. It makes a lot of other verses that teach this concept of grace through faith meaningless if irresistible grace is true. And so I believe, brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches that this doctrine of irresistible grace is absolutely false. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That verse is special. That verse is powerful. Because it teaches not this concept that we're all totally depraved and can't do anything and God has chosen some to save and some to condemn and that if you're one of those God has saved then Jesus died for you and he'll send his Holy Spirit into you to regenerate you and give you faith and give you obedience. It doesn't teach that. It teaches that every single one of us has the opportunity to respond to the gospel. Every single one of us can hear that call whether we're a Jew, whether we're a Greek. And upon that condition of belief, of that faith, and what that faith entails in responding to the conditions of God, then we have salvation. We're added to the church. His chosen people, his royal priesthood, his peculiar people, and we can have confidence that we're saved. We can have confidence that if we continue to walk in that faith and that obedience, that we'll make it to heaven. And we're going to talk about that concept of making it to heaven tomorrow in our last study on the perseverance of the saints. I hope the study is helpful this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to know the proper way to come to God. And it's not through God sending His Spirit to regenerate you. It's through you making the choice to hear the truth 
and to respond to that. And if you need to respond to that this morning, please do that. If you're here and you're a Christian and there's another way that we can help and encourage or pray for you, we ask also that you'd come as we stand and sing.